Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands, for it's only in your will that I am free. It's only in your will that I am free. So Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. It's one of my favorite songs. And it speaks to me, it's, it's like a prayer that's just beneath the surface in my heart so that when I go to praise the Lord or when I go to the Lord in prayer, it's one of the first things that comes out of my mouth. And that happened to me again tonight. And the phrase, the line that speaks to me so powerfully is when he says, it's only in your will that I am free. And I've often thought about what a paradox to the flesh that statement really is. That we would only find liberty, the liberty of the sons of God, in the confines of his will. I thought of what, <clears throat> what Jesus prayed when he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He said that to a people who were anxious to see the kingdom. Nicodemus was anxious to see the kingdom. Everybody was anxious to see the kingdom. They wanted to see the political nation restored back to the Jewish people. They were so excited about it that in the sixth chapter of John, when Jesus began to move in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the words that were spirit started pouring out of his mouth. The crowd was so transfixed, they were so energized with faith and excitement that they tried to forcibly make him king. They wanted to see the kingdom of God that was at hand. And he wanted them to believe that that kingdom was at hand. But they did not understand that it was a kingdom not of this world. It was a kingdom of God's will. It was not a kingdom of political might or of violent coercion. God's kingdom comes when God's will is allowed to be done. And he wants his will to be done not by the external imposition of some government, but he wants his will to be done because it is so motivating, it is so good, it is so inspiring that we are internally motivated to do it. I thought this week, I've actually been thinking for the past three weeks about the first king of Israel. How many of you know who the first king of Israel was? I'll speak to the young people. Who was it? It was Saul. It was really a pretty exciting moment, wasn't it, when the man Saul was made king? There's a lot to learn and a lot that's been taught in those passages of how Samuel found Saul, who was the least in all his tribe, the man whose tribe was also the least. And you remember how he was hiding in the stuff 
he was hiding in the baggage and God had to call him out and there was a sacrifice to Yahweh that day. It was really a great moment, wasn't it? And yet just before that moment, we're told that the prophet Samuel was weeping. Why was Samuel weeping before this great moment? Samuel was weeping because he felt like the people had rejected the non-coercive rule of relational authority. Samuel didn't Samuel was no king. He spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was a prophet, he wasn't a king. He was a prophet, he wasn't a prince. He wasn't a general, he wasn't a soldier, he was a prophet. He was a man of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, the people say, give us a king, like all the other nations, that he may fight our battles for us. And Samuel begins to weep because he sees that the potential of a spiritual nation is dying and the birth of a political nation is taking place. And the men of God should always weep when the church is clamoring for a political solution when God wants a relationship of the Spirit with his people. Samuel was weeping and the Lord said, Samuel, what did the Lord say to Samuel? Do not weep. They have not rejected you. What did the Lord say? They have rejected me. You say, well, but the Lord gave them that king. The Lord blessed his coronation. The Lord commanded the people to obey him. But the Lord said that their choice for a king was an act of rejection of God. So was the political nation, was the political king ever God's perfect will? Was that his will? Did it please the Lord? No, but when we are in rebellion, when we cannot align our will to do God's will, God will allow these providential, provincial solutions that in the end will teach us how badly we really needed Him and our relationship in the Spirit. You, re you remember that the Lord spoke through Samuel exactly what Saul was going to do. He's going to raise your taxes. He's going to take away your young men. He told them that you're not going to be happy but there was a carnality, there was a fleshly, natural-mindedness that had become so prevalent in the people of God that they could no longer appreciate what they had with the prophet. They wanted a prince. They wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. Amen? And the Lord allowed it. Sometimes God's discipline, God's punishment is giving us what we asked for. How many of you remember the time when the people of Israel, the children of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they began to complain that they were only eating manna, that they hadn't had any meat in a long time? Do you remember this? 
And they lifted up their voices and complained to Moses and said, Oh, give us meat. We want meat so bad. And God heard their complaining and the Lord was angry. And so what did he do? How did he punish them? He gave them what they asked for. Sometimes God's greatest judgment on the church is to give it what it's asking for. In this story of Moses and the people, it says that the Lord opened up the heavens and it rained quail. Quail fell down in thousands upon thousands of quail fell down all across the camp of Israel. And they were so greedy, so psyched up in the flesh that they just tore into it and they began to eat this quail. And what was the result? Thousands and ten thousands were poisoned that day. Because sometimes God's greatest judgment is to give us what we ask for. You say, but the quail came from heaven. Yes, but it was not God's perfect will. His perfect will was for them to be content, was for them to be obedient. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We also see examples as when they made a golden calf and Moses ground it up into powder and he poured it in the river and he made them drink the gold dust water. Sometimes God's worst judgment and greatest punishment is to give us what we ask for. But his design and his purpose was never to have a political kingdom. His design and purpose was that his kingdom would become real as his will was done. And his will would be done as human hearts submitted their wills through the Holy Spirit to the divine will, the will of God. Our Father who art in heaven, don't give us a king. Don't give us a political solution. Don't give us quail. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. That is our authority. That is our power. It is the name above every name. The name of Yeshua, the name of Jesus. Your kingdom come as your will is being done in our lives. Because we know that it's only in your will that we are free. So I want to talk to you about the will of God. Amen. We talk about it so freely. We talk about what God's will is and what God's will is. But we can know the will of God. God's perfect will is not something imposed upon us. It's something that passes by us. It's something that comes near us. It's something that we have to reach out and touch and pull into our souls. It's something we have to feel after. It's something we have to grope after. But it is knowable. It is attainable. It is doable by His grace. I wrote at the top of what I want to share with you tonight, God's will against my will. I know that's very simple, but I, you're going to understand why I said that here in a minute. God's will against my will. Have you ever talked with someone who was being ornery or stubborn and you said, you're just being willful? Maybe a child. 
Willfulness represents authority. It represents a choice. And when you have two strong wills, you have a war. You have a, a constant state of friction. And so one of those wills is going to have to win out, and the other is going to have to surrender. The carnal nature comes to the table, comes to the relationship with a will that does not automatically align with God's. That's how you and I were born. We were born in the image of God, but we were corrupted so that we think that we're like little gods and we want to exert our will and we're willful little children, stick out our bottom lip and we want it our way. <laughs> but it says the natural man is irreconcilable. He cannot be reconciled with the things of God. The things of the spirit and the things of the flesh are implacably opposed. They're never going to agree. You can get a lot of people to agree on a lot of things. You can get a handful of men to agree on a bank robbery. You can get millions to agree on a political solution. You can get hundreds to agree on an investment, thousands to agree on money solutions, but you're never gonna get a single man to agree with the Spirit of God. Nobody is ever going to want to do it God's way. They're, they're going to want to seek God's results, but their methods. And we got to come to grips with this. We got to come to, to, we have to come and face the fact that for him to be king, we have got to lose our authority. We have got to surrender our godhood. And we can modify that godhood and we can dress that godhood up and we can put makeup on that godhood. We can change that godhood's name. We can make it look spiritual and sweet and bat its eyes and lay its ears back like a good little dog. But it's still the will of the flesh. God's will doesn't agree with your will. And the first step in becoming useful is to recognize that and to be okay with it. And to say, if I'm going to do God's will today, then my flesh is going to be disobeyed every time I turn around. Do you like being disobeyed? Do you like things going the wrong, different than you expected or you thought was best? You've got to become reconciled to perpetual state of disobedience. Not to God, but to yourself. If you can't become comfortable with the disobedience of your will, then you're going to become an agent of disobedience toward God's will. God has a purpose. He has a plan. And his purpose is the kingdom. His plan is to bring as many who are willing into that kingdom. You're not the purpose. You're the agent. God's purpose is bigger than you. You say, I want, to do, I, want to do, I want to do God's will. Well, the first thing you need to know is that it's going to disobey with your will. It's going to disagree with your will. The second thing you need to know is that it's not about you. That was the problem with Jonah. God had this burden for this city called Nineveh. And Jonah thought it was about him. Jonah thought it was about him. And he ended up in the bottom of the sea 
in the belly of a fish, swirling around in fish puke, trying to find a place of repentance. Because he hadn't accustomed himself, he hadn't reconciled himself to the fact that God's will disobeys the flesh's will. And that it wasn't about him. Meanwhile, the disciples came to Jesus and began to urge him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What a devastating statement. I wonder how many people the Lord would speak that to tonight. You don't know anything about the fulfillment and the food of the kingdom that some people live off of. The disciples were fixated. They were focused on the, on the, the food for the flesh. The food for the flesh is necessary, and the Lord provides for it. But in the Lord's prayer, he says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we know that the true bread that comes down out of heaven is Jesus. The Word made flesh. The true bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the daily bread that is going to sustain the, the weak spiritual man is the morsel of truth that you can't live without. The disciples came to Jesus and said, please eat something. Do you remember when this happened? It's in John 4. They were in Samaria and they came to a, a city there in Samaria and they became embarrassed that they had forgotten to pack a lunch. And so they said, Lord, we'll go get something to eat. And I don't, I can't fully understand why it took 11 of them to go get some bread. But it might have been because they were embarrassed and didn't want to explain, you know, kind of when the, when the nine leave and there are two left, maybe he would have said, by the way, who forgot to bring the bread? I don't know, but 11 of them went, went off to get some bread, or 12 of them went off to get some bread. And he's left there at the well by himself, and you know what happens at the well. We would call it a divine appointment. This stranger comes up and starts to talk to Jesus. And the conversation kind of skips across the surface until it goes way deeper, and she is converted. She becomes a believer that very hour. He says to her, the one who is speaking to you is he speaking of himself as the Messiah who is to come. And so they've been off getting bread and very busy, no doubt. And, and you know, you can just picture the sacks of bread and, you know, we've got some cheese also and maybe some grape juice and, and they're sitting around and, and they're all just eating and, boy, that was good, Thomas. And could I have another piece of that with the brie? And, and they're going night and nothing. And, and it's like, Lord, why don't you eat? Because apparently he was sitting there the whole time while they're eating lunch and he's... His mind is elsewhere. His heart is elsewhere. He's just had a phenomenal encounter. He's just changed somebody's life. And they're just, don't you want something? And he says this to them. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. It's an insult. You don't know anything about this. And my heart tonight is I want to know about that food. 
I want to know about that food. I, I don't just want to know a little bit about it. I want to know everything about it. I like cooking. I like making nice food. I like blessing people, putting smiles on their faces with delicious food. But if I could, I'd never eat again if it meant that I could have that food with no shortage. I want to know more about that food. And I just wonder how many of us who think that we're followers of Christ, who think that we're good disciples, we're still in that stage where we really don't know anything about that food. It gets me that he calls it food. Was he the one receiving the word that day at the side of the well? Or was he the one giving the word? But apparently, it's food for the soul, not just to take the word, but also to give the word. We would have thought that the woman was getting quite full because she was the one receiving the word, but he was getting full too. His soul was being nourished because he had the privilege of speaking the word of God to somebody. Now that describes a certain kind of person, doesn't it? It describes the only kind of person through whom the kingdom of God is going to be realized. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? Jesus said, my food, my nourishment, what fills me up, what I enjoy, what I savor, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say four months and then comes the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Amen. Oh, stop being satisfied with bread and cheese and drink. Stop living on this existence that really is so base and so carnal and so fleshly. Get to know something about this food that Jesus eats. We know that we're not going to find this kingdom will, this food of kingdom will, unless there's an appetite that's been cultivated. He does not say, blessed are those who are satisfied. Blessed are those who are full as a tick. For they already got what they need. He said, blessed are those that do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's got to be something inside of you that says, I'm not satisfied with what the flesh can give. We all have a flesh, and that flesh has needs. But even when the flesh is full, God, I want so much more. I want so much more in my life. Brother Kevin read to us Saturday night about how when David was anointed while Saul was still living, you remember the Lord rejected Saul. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm rejecting him and I'm going to find a man who has a heart after my own heart. And then it says that David was up in the wilderness and Brother Kevin said that 
He read the passage where it says, while David was in the wilderness, all those who were discontent were going to him in the wilderness. It takes discontent to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You gotta be discontent with what the flesh has to offer before you're gonna cultivate that hunger for the things of the Spirit of God. You're not gonna be able to eat the food of God's will, of doing God's will and let your soul be nourished and satisfied. He shall see the reward of his soul and be satisfied, the prophet Isaiah said. But you're not gonna get to that place unless you're first discontent by what the flesh can do. I'm not saying you don't enjoy a burger, a lemonade, of course you do, an ice cream cone. But all the things of the flesh, they're nothing. They don't have any comparison to the things of the Spirit of God. Set before me the table of undone work, and I'm going to be filled with the food of doing the will of him who sent me and finishing his work. Give me a task. Give me a burden. Give me something that can still be done to push this kingdom forward, and my soul is going to be filled. Psalms 40, verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering the Lord does not desire. God's not looking for food either. He's looking for people whom he can consume. Not bread, not grain, not meat. Sacrifice and meal offering he has not desired, but my ears he has opened. Burnt offering and sin offering he has not required. Then I said, behold, I come. God doesn't want you to throw something at him. He doesn't want you to toss a sacrifice his way. He wants you to listen to him. He doesn't want you to put another pile of grain on the altar. He wants you to come. Behold, I come. He wants you to step up and step forward and say, it's my time. My soul craves my place, my burden. Give it to me. This is my food. Let me read it to you again and let's see if your ear is open. Sacrifice and offering he does not desire, but my ear he has opened. Burnt offering and sin offering he does not require. Then I said, behold, I come. Does anybody want to come? Does anybody want to step up to the need, to the plate, and say, God, this is my food to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work? We know that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament translates this same passage, and they put a different twist on it. He trans The writer of Hebrews says, Behold, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared to do your will, O God. He wants a body. He wants a man. He wants a corporate man. He wants a church who stops throwing sacrifices at him and becomes the sacrifice. Your pile of grain and your pile of meat, it's just not enough anymore. God wants a body to burn. He wants a body to have fire come upon it and be consumed for his purpose. Zeal for his house has consumed me. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart.
It's not an external. It's not a threat of judgment. It's a heartthrob. It's inside of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the gospel, glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O oh Lord, you know. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you. He doesn't want your grain. He doesn't want your meat. He wants your body. He wants your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And David says, I am not going to restrain my lips. I'm going to come. Behold, I come. And then he says, I have not hidden your, your righteousness. I have not hidden. This ought to make you think of Romans 1. We're going to get there momentarily. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. David hadn't taken a breath here. This is all the same thought. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the congregation. You, O oh Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will always preserve me. And what he's trying to say is, I'm not sitting on my gift. I'm not burying my talent in the backyard. I'm not hiding my lamp under a bushel. I'm being transparent. I'm becoming a vessel. I'm starting to burn. This body is learning to do your will, oh God. I'm coming when the master calls. It makes me think so much of Romans 1 where Paul says this, I am under obligation. Did everybody hear that? I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Paul is speaking of an obligation that has been put on him. What he is saying is God's truth has been revealed in his life. God's love has become real in his life. The revelation of salvation has become real in his life. And he says, that puts an obligation on me. That puts a mandate on me. And he says, I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, I think people look around 
and see men of God and they say, I want to be like that. I want to have that power. I want to have that fruit. But they want the results without the methods. They don't really want to undergo what that person had to undergo to become someone who did God's will and advanced his kingdom. You look around and you say, wow, he's got such an anointing or he's got such a gift to, to teach or to sing that it just comes out of him. No, it doesn't just come out of him. Nope, it doesn't. You know what happens all by itself? You know what happens naturally? It just sinks into the bottom of him. That gift of God, it gets buried in the backyard. That's what happens naturally by default. Fear is a strong thing. He doesn't just automatically or naturally get up and make his heart vulnerable. Nope, that's not what happens. What happens naturally is this tendency towards suppression. This tendency toward hiding the righteousness in your heart. Concealing the loving kindness and truth, to use David's words. That's what happens naturally. So how do you get it out of him? How do you, how do you get that out of somebody? There's a gift inside of them. There's a purpose. There's a germ of promise. There's a potential for the kingdom inside of you. How do you get it out of them? Just happens automatically, right? No, it doesn't. How do you get it out of them? How did it come out of Paul? Oh, it was just this wellspring. It comes naturally to me, dear Romans. So I am going to speak at least to the wise in what I say. Is that what he said? How did it come out of Paul? How did his ministry begin? It began with a choice not to be disobedient, didn't it? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I went straight away into Arabia as I was instructed. It begins with this feeling that says, God, you've never done anything in my life before, but if you're going to start now, I'm going to be your ready slave. Speak and I'll move. Move and I'll respond. God, just have your way in my life. But then Paul speaks of this obligation. Does it come naturally to get the word of God? Does it come naturally to, to sing like you sing, Danny? First time you tried, it was just there, right? Brother Dan, does it come naturally to teach like you teach? Just happen, just kind of falls out, just lean in the direction of it, and here it comes. Just like sitting down on a couch. It's my gift. Does it come naturally to, to disciple people? How do these things happen? I'll tell you how they happen. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There is a sense of indebtedness. There is a sense of obligation. There is a sense 
that something has been done to you and for you that you are going to be accountable for. Yes, it is fulfilling. Yes, it is food for your soul. Yes, it is nourishing to your spiritual man. But there is also the pressure that says, who do you think you are? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, get with it and glorify God with your body. He doesn't want a sacrifice of grain or meat. He wants a body prepared to do his will. Get with it. Now, if you're too precious and you feel like Jesus got a special thing when he got you, then you're never going to get to that place, are you? But if you know just how rotten and carnal and fleshly you are, then just maybe, knowing the terror of the Lord, you're going to start persuading people. Read Psalms 51. Cleanse me, wash me. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Make me to know gladness. Take not thy Holy Spirit. Then I will teach sinners your ways and transgressors will be converted to you. It'll happen when you know who you are, when you know just what you are without God. When you know that you're bound for hell, knowing the terror of the Lord, you're going to become awfully persuasive. Do you think Jonah was more or less persuasive after having spent a night in hotel fish? When you have a brush with eternity and you remember just who you are, you're going to know the terror of the Lord and you're going to become persuasive. How about this scripture? 1 Corinthians 9, 16, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this voluntarily, I have something to boast in. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Against my will. Against my will. That's what I want to bring home to you. Paul said he preached the gospel against his will. God's will against your will. You're going to come into your place. You're going to come into your gift against your will. If you think you know the smooth path, you think you know the balanced approach, you think you know the, the, the approach that minimizes turbulence and makes for the smoothest landing, that's an illusion, and it's going to end in crash. You need to reconcile yourself to the fact that God's will is against your will. You need to reconcile yourself to the fact that all those complaints that rise up in you and say, I wish it was this way and I wish it was that way and if only this had happened and if this was different and if that could happen, all of that is part of God's will. Amen? Look at Joseph. Look at what he went through. Was it God's perfect will that they throw him in the pit? It's a hard question, isn't it? Because God accomplished his perfect purpose through it. They were sinning, but God was winning. Was it God's will that he be lying about in Potiphar's house? No. But God was still having his will in Joseph's life 
because all things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Was it God's will that he was forgotten for those years? It wasn't God's will that they should forget him, but it was God's will that the, that the errors and mistakes of others would work a trust in God that ran deeper than circumstance, that actually gave birth to faith. If he hadn't gone through all of that, he would have been too proud. He would have gotten lifted up in pride and he would have fallen into the sin of the novice or the sin of the devil when he was exalted to the mightiest position in all of Egypt. So many times we complain against the circumstances that God would use to train us. I told somebody recently, I said, I don't like that that happened to you. I don't like that you were misunderstood or mishandled, but you know what? You need it. You need it. You need to come to that place of resignation where you say, God, this is just another way where my will is being disobeyed and your will is coming and your kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. When you go into training in the military and they make you crawl beneath barbed wire and they're shooting bullets over your head, are they really trying to kill you? Or are those the people on your side? Are those your, your partners, your soldiers on the same side? Hmm? And yet, it's not a life and death Disaster. It's not a life and death situation, but it's preparing you for a life and death situation. I think it's great that in the church there's just enough error and mistake that we can crawl underneath the barbed wire and not get all ripped up. It just makes us crawl a little flatter and get a little lower and stay a little more humble, doesn't it? Good grief, we're preparing to actually go to war. And if we can't take the mistakes and rubber bullets of our brothers, what are we going to do when we face the real enemy? I read in Jeremiah where he says, if you have run with the footmen and they have exhausted you, what are you going to do when you face the horsemen? God, help us to repent of all this whining and complaining and all these silly expectations that life is supposed to be good. Life is bad, but God is good. People make mistakes, but trust in God runs deeper. People mess things up, but the promise of God in Joseph's life is not going to be undone because it's God's promise. And we're persuaded he can keep it until that day. I want to put a burden inside of you. I want to put a burden on you. I want you to feel that the purpose of God is bigger than you. You just have a privilege. Everybody goes through things. Everybody encounters barbed wire. Everybody gets hit with rubber bullets. Everybody sometimes gets grazed with real bullets, even hit and wounded. But you, you have a chance to go through it in training. You have a chance to do it for God. You have a chance to learn something from it. They go through it and they don't know why it's happening. All these scars and tears and rips and it's, the world is a, is, a, is a place of chaos confusion. Why is this happening to me? Disease and mishap and betrayal and mistakes and oh God, disappointment on disappointment and what was it all for? We go through the same things. Christians go through the same things. But there's a purpose behind it. You say, God, I know you're fired over my head right now, 
I know this doesn't feel good, but I also know you're working in me a gratitude. You're working in me a trust, an eternal weight of glory that is so much more valuable than whatever it is I'm going through. That's why he says, endure hardship as discipline, as a good soldier. You can treat it any way you want. You can say, I'm going to take this hardship as God's rejection. Well, that's one course. I hope you do well with that. I'm not sure what your faith is going to look like in a few weeks other than a tatter of rags. You can say, I'm going to take this as, as God's unfairness. Well, you can try that too. Jonah pouted on the side of a hill. It didn't do him much good. The Lord God provided a worm, and the last little thing he relied on withered up from before him. Or you can say, you know what? There's another way I can look at this. I'm going to go ahead and decide right now. I'm going to endure this as discipline. It doesn't mean God's sending it my way. It doesn't mean this is God's fault. It means he's allowing it, and he's using it so that I can one day say with Joseph, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. What a life! What a purpose! I think some people are waiting for their moment. Some people are waiting for the red carpet to be rolled out. For the crowd to gather around and... Let's serve notice on those expectations that they're never going to happen. Never. What you can wait for is the laughter and the mocking. You can wait for the rejection and the slander. But you can wait for the Lord standing at the end of the race saying, you can do it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on, do it for Jesus' sake. Come on. What God's waiting for is for you to stop throwing him sacrifices and for you to come, for you to step up, step forward. Say, God, whatever it takes, squeeze it out of me, turn me upside down and shake it out of me, pull it out of me, kick it out of me, do whatever it takes, God, but get it out of me. This is my only purpose, and I don't want to miss it before my time is up. Your flesh may be in tatters, your image will be in tatters, but your soul is going to be nourished. You're going to feel fulfillment. You're going to come, you're going to come away and you're going to be exhausted. And you're going to say, I don't know why I did that. The Lord's going to say, yeah, you do. Because you didn't have a choice. You're under obligation. Get up there and do it anyway. I don't hear any trumpets, but I hear the call of God. Just change your mind, change your heart, change your approach. Tell him you're changing. Tell him you're coming. I can hear you, Lord, I'm coming. I can hear you, Lord, I'm changing. Don't get to the end of your life and wish you had. Joseph, don't die in prison. Joseph, don't give up when people fail you. Come on, there's a purpose. It's coming, it's coming. Just wait for it.